Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? Welcome to another episode of the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping. Of course, I've been doing this a couple times. Hopefully, you know who I am. Today, uh, it's just me. You're stuck with me. Um, I want to talk about why doing hard things is actually really good for you. Okay, so stick with me on this one. Um, I was driving around this week uh, doing some mobile work. Kind of get my butt kicked on a few things, which is a regular occurrence for me. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I was thinking of how challenging this field is, uh, has always been, as long as I've been in the automotive industry. And, of course, we have our gravy tickets and vehicles and fixes. But, you know, on a regular basis, how much the automotive field really pushes you to your limits on a regular basis. And why do I do this? Why do we do this? It's just kind of what I was thinking about. And also, why do I love this field so much? Why do so many other people love the automotive trade? And I mean, specifically, of course, we're talking about diagnostics on this podcast, but just being a tech in general, why do we love it? Why are we drawn towards it? Well, Honestly, I think one of the biggest things is because it's so challenging at times. Not every day, hopefully not all the time. Uh, We we need those easy tickets. We need those easy fixes. And I'll talk about that. Why are they easy at times? I think, again, it comes back to because it was challenging to you at one point, you're able to make it easy and you're able to charge appropriately for that task being easy to you, but not someone else. But anyways, my goal today is to encourage you throughout your daily routine as a technician or whatever you do in this field is to take on some challenges that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. Maybe you'd pass up on this one way or another. Maybe you have an option to say yes or no to something and you decide, okay, I'm going to take on this challenge today because in the long run, the grand scheme of things, it's actually going to be really good for you. And that's what today's talk's about. So let's get into it. Uh, first, I'm going to start off with an example of getting my butt kicked. So I think I brought this up on the podcast recently, although I didn't go into extreme detail with it. So this was a 2005 BMW 645Ci, which is a convertible model. And what I was originally called into for this vehicle was just to add a key, right? So the customer, um, he manages a Firestone that I do some work for. I used to work with him in a Firestone, good friend of mine. Anyways, so he's like, hey, can we get a key for this thing? That's what he asked me. I come and I get a key that I, as far as I could tell, is correct for the vehicle. 
and I go to program this key in, well, as it turns out, the key I got was the incorrect one. So the first thing I learned off the bat was you really have to pay attention on these vehicles to make sure that you get the right part number, right? So there was a wasted trip there. Within that trip, I did find out the reason that he wanted the key is that the remote function of the two keys that he had no longer worked. And these appear to be original keys, or at least they had been around for quite some time. They appear to be original BMW or OE BMW keys. And that was the reason that he wanted me to program one in. All right, well, now I have at least know that, okay, I got to get the correct key. Um, the one I had just didn't match the vehicle at all. Although physically it looked the same, the FCC number and the part number of these things really does matter for them to work. So I get the correct key, I go back, I program this key in, and I actually am able to program the key to the vehicle. It starts the engine and runs but the remote functions don't work. And again, this is his original concern. So now I'm faced with the question, okay, is there something wrong with the key I got? Maybe I got a second wrong one, although it does start the vehicle, or is there a problem with the vehicle? And this is where the challenge really came in for me because I'm not extremely familiar with European vehicles. I feel like every time I work on a European vehicle, I'm faced with a challenge and I learn something, which is kind of the point here. And that, and that's what's going on here is I was trying to think, I was like, okay, well, let's scan the vehicle and let's go to the module who receives the information from the key. And then I'm thinking there, I'm like, I have no clue what module receives the RF signal from the key. Absolutely no idea. You know, I know it's a certain frequency that's emitted from the key and something in the car picks it up and then sends it maybe somewhere to unlock, you know, unlock the doors or lock the doors. But I have no clue on this 05 BMW who does what. And you can look in service information. And if you dig, there there is definitely some information in there it's not easily available i guess and again that that comes back to just me being maybe not being familiar with the way that the information's organized but anyways i'm going to do some digging i'm going to try to figure this out so through some digging and also talking to people i did have some friends help me out with this i was able to find out that the mirror the rear view mirror in this convertible actually receives the signal for the remote keyless entry. When you press the unlock or the lock button, sends an RF signal. And actually, I have a whole episode on that where I got my butt kicked on a GMC Yukon. And I, I deep dove into electromagnetic waves. <laughs> um, so at least I understand that portion, <laughs> kind of. Um, it sends out this RF signal. And it actually goes to the rearview mirrors, but only in convertibles. And you can be tricked by this if you're not careful reading the service information because the sedan, or, or I should say the hardtop version of this vehicle, has a module in the trunk that receives the signal. So you have to know that it's going to be different depending on the style of vehicle that you're working on. And then once it gets that signal... It's going to send it to the CAS module, which is up under the dash, and that's going to actually send the signals to lock or unlock the doors. So that's car access system. It's essentially BMW uses anti-theft module. Okay, so I learn all this, and, and this is 
time out of my day to research and figure this stuff out and talk to people who know more about BMWs than me to get this information. Okay. I also find out some stuff about the keys and the anti-theft system and the BMWs and there's EWS and there's CAS systems and there's CAS 2 and CAS 3 and I have to figure out which one I have because that changes how you match up the keys. Again, a learning experience for me because I just... Maybe I'd seen some of this stuff somewhere, I've read some of it or seen a video, but I didn't have it locked in. And so I've got to go through this again to make sure that I'm on the same page for all of this stuff. And this is all very time consuming when I'm trying to run a mobile business and get from shop to shop and schedule a day. And I had to make, you know, multiple trips to this place. Uh, you know, I said I got the wrong key in the first place and then we came back and Although the key started, it still didn't work. So I've got to do research. Now I've got to do testing. And I get to the point where I know the mirror is supposed to get the signal. And I look at the diagram. And there's a single wire between the mirror and the cast module. It's what appears to be a LIN bus. And there's a fixed voltage, which through disconnecting some modules, I figure out that that fixed reference or bias voltage whatever you want to call it is coming from the cast module and i assume the mirror is supposed to pull that down to ground when it gets a key signal that's that's my guess there's really nothing in service information that tells you that though so at this point i reach out to a few people again ask some questions nobody really has a straight answer for me so i decide okay well let's go with a mirror let's get one uh, everything I find, they don't need to be programmed. There's nothing specific to the mirror that belongs just to one vehicle. So everything that I could read is that the CAS module is going to take that key information that the mirror sends to it and then determine, is okay, does this key belong to this vehicle? But that mirror is going to be able to receive any key that's on the same frequency. Okay. So let's get a mirror and let's see what happens. Apparently there's no programming. They get a mirror, they plug it in, they call me and say, hey, it works. All my remotes work now. The first two and the one that you made for it, they all work now. Awesome. Great. Okay. So again, the reason I'm telling you this is because this one was butt kicker. It was not profitable for me in any way. I This is a shop that's kind of across town. I made, I want to say three, three or four trips there. And okay, the argument could be made, well, you should be, you should be charging every single time that you go. In this case, again, it was a friend of mine, but also I felt like I was a little behind the eight ball on stuff, right? You know, I should have had the correct key in the first place. I should have been able to figure this stuff out. I guess that's uh, that part of it's besides the point. The reality of it was though, is this is just not profitable for me to do this job. It, kicked my butt. And that's why I'm telling you about it, is kicked my butt. But on the other side of it, as I get past that and I move on and I'm doing more vehicles, I've gained some knowledge that I did not have before and would have been very difficult to obtain any other way except for going through it. Now, there might be some other ways and I'll talk about that. But Going through that and learning everything as I go, learning about the CAS and the EWS, learning about the part numbers for the keys, learning about the mirror, learning about how the systems interact, that you don't need to program the mirror, and that it's different for a convertible and a hardtop. 
that's all locked into my brain now because I struggle with it because I'm sitting there, boy, I've got other appointments to get to, but I got to figure out this BMW. I'm sitting at home. Oh man, I've got so much other stuff to do, but I've got to read up on this BMW to try to figure this out. It is a struggle in the moment, but in the long run, it's going to pay off in knowledge that you can use going down the road. And that's what all this is about. And that's just one example. So we're going to run up against stuff like this in the automotive trade. You all know this. If you're listening to this podcast and you've been in this field for any amount of time, I mean, it can take the form of a challenging diagnostic, a repair that just didn't go your way, a broken bolt, even a difficult customer. It doesn't really matter. You're going to be faced with a, what seems to be in the moment insurmountable challenge in this field. But the point I'd like to make today is that those challenges, as difficult as they are in the moment when we're faced with them and we're stuck down in the muck just struggling, they're actually really good for us. And I actually think, within reason, you should seek them out. That's my goal today is to persuade or to encourage you to seek out some challenge that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. Because what these challenges are going to do, what these struggles are going to do is force us to grow as technicians and sometimes even as people. And without those, you're not going to change. I mean, we'd all just like to think that we just want the gravy work, right? And I've heard plenty of technicians and heck, I've even said it myself. Like, I just wish I could do that gravy work all day long and get that nice fat paycheck at the end of the week or two weeks or whatever and not have to face anything that's really difficult, right? Just do that stuff that we know how to do very well and nothing goes wrong and no bolts break and the cars cooperate and there's never any comebacks and there's never any intermittent issues. None of that stuff, right? We just, we do our thing, we show up, we do our thing, we get a really nice paycheck and that's it. Okay. And that that's great in your head, but if you imagine it, like if I imagine I go to work, I do my programming thing, and I program, let's say, 10 or 12 6L80 Tecums on GM trucks, right? Great money. That's that's a heck of a day. I'm, I'm making some bank if I'm doing that, but I'm not learning anything. I'm not going to be different at the end of the day than I was at the start of the day. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of come to the realization that, boy, I I want to improve. If I'm not improving, if I'm just stagnant, if I'm the same that I was yesterday or the last week or the last month or the last year, I'm at the same point, I'm really unhappy with that. I want to be better. I want to keep improving. And the only Well, I think the best way, the most effective way, is to challenge yourself. That's how you're going to improve, how you're going to get better. Now, you might say, okay, well, I am trying to make money. I am trying to get that fat paycheck, taking on things that are going to make my day more difficult and less productive is not something that I want to do. 
And I'll agree, it needs to be done in a controlled manner, right? It needs to be done with some care, right? I'm not going to chop off my foot because that makes it more difficult to walk, right? Instead, maybe I'll go to the gym and I'll do some squats and deadlifts and build my muscles up and become really strong, right? There's there's an appropriate way to do things and that comes with some wisdom uh, as we've experienced this field for a little bit, right? So I do want to point that out is that we should be doing these things within reason um, and not making our days intentionally difficult. But at the same time, we shouldn't be actively avoiding things that push us outside of our comfort zone. That should be something that you should seek out occasionally, if not on a regular basis. Right? We do need to make money. Right, we, This is the reason we show up for work is that we got to pay the bills. Or most of us anyways. We, I know me. The reason I keep doing this is because I need to pay the bills. Right, So I need to find those things that are effective, that are efficient, that are profitable. But some of the things that are the most profitable to us are only because we've gone through a struggle or challenge in the past. And that's part of the reason I'm talking about this, is because the more challenges that we take on, that we face, that we grow, that we struggle through, what we get through, we get to the other side, that's now one more weapon that we have in our arsenal in order to make money in the future. Or you know, there may be a case where you realize, okay, this is just something I need to avoid completely because it's not going to make money. All right. So, and you could look at that as being profitable too, because you know what to avoid, right? This is just not going to be anything that's effective for me because I've tried, I've struggled through it. Maybe I got to the other side, but it's not worth it. Right. And, And that can definitely happen. That's happened for me plenty of times. I mean, Breaking bolts is a great example of it. Breaking bolts is very difficult to fix. It is definitely not profitable if you're the one that broke the bolt. So I'm going to avoid that at all costs, right? I've learned that mess. I've learned that lesson many, many times, unfortunately. I think I should have probably learned it quicker, but I've definitely broke my fair share of bolts. That's something we want to avoid, okay? But there may be a challenge that you struggle through and you just get your butt kicked. You get to the other side and you're like, oh, I guess that really wasn't that bad now that I understand how to avoid the pitfalls, how to get over the hurdles, how this system works, how to test this thing, whatever. Now I know it. Now it's really not that bad. It may be challenging to other people, who have actively avoided taking on that challenge, who have not seen this in their day-to-day life yet, but it's easy to you. Now, you are somebody who can do something that other people can't, and that's going to be profitable. That's going to be effective for you. That's going to build value in what you bring as a technician day-to-day. And that's why it's worth taking on at least attempting some of these things that maybe otherwise you might pass up. Because here's the deal. If we think about some of the things that we do that are 
profitable for us or or even just gravy work for us, right? The stuff that you just breeze through without a second thought and then you end up getting paid well for it. Why exactly is that? And I'm going to give you an example here of a vehicle that I diagnosed the other day. And as I go through the diagnosis, which is nothing incredibly special, but when I walked in, this was very easy for me. And I don't want to sound arrogant in any way. And you'll tell, you'll be able to tell by the story that this, there's no arrogance here. But this was very easy for me to diagnose. I had it done very quickly. And the technician at the shop looked at me like I was some sort of magical wizard, which is far from the case. But there's a reason that it was easy to me. And most of the reason for this, um, there's, there's a small part that's additional, but most of the reason for this was struggling and looking like an idiot at other points in my career. Okay. That's, that's where I'm going with this. So 2012 Nissan Maxima, it was a no crank, no start. Obviously, I don't know why people say that, right? If it doesn't crank, of course it doesn't start. But anyways, um, it didn't crank. Uh, and so the shop put a starter in it, didn't fix it, and then they called me in. This shop doesn't do much diagnostic work. They're, they don't do a whole lot. They'll kind of throw parts at stuff. If that doesn't fix it, they call me in for diag. All right, cool. So I get to this vehicle, and I hop in the vehicle, and I press. This is a push-button start Nissan. So I have the key fob, I press the start button on the dash, and the dash lights up. So ignition on. Okay, so here's what I know. I know that the key works, and at least the BCM is able to recognize that the correct key is in the vehicle. Here's why I know that. I worked on an Infinity, um, one of the early podcast episodes, which was multiple trips, because it was a flood car, but it was a lot of learning and I go through the whole Nissan push-button start system in that episode because I probably spent three, four hours reading up on how it worked and how the signals get between the remote key and the BCM and the antenna and the push-button start. And so all of that was in my memory from spending hours of time reading up and sitting out in the parking lot looking like a dork reading my laptop while the technicians are like, what is that guy doing out there? Does he really think he can fix this car? Um, but I knew because the dash lit up, I'm not really worried about the key, right? This is the right key for the vehicle. It's not a key issue. Okay. Well, here's the other thing I noticed. As soon as I hit that button, the cooling fans out of the hood started going like full blast, right? And the engine's not running. I just have the key on. So I haven't even plugged in my scan tool yet. And now I know that the ECM cannot communicate with the IPDM, which is the fuse box under the hood, right? The engine control module can't talk to the IPDM. Why do I know that? Well, <laughs> I programmed a few Nissans before, and I learned the hard way when you go to program an ECM on a Nissan, it takes the ECM essentially off of the bus, right? You can't have a module talking to other modules and being programmed at the same time. So 
if the IPDM who has the, all the cooling fan relays plugged into it and runs the cooling fans can't talk to the ECM, no longer sees signals from the ECM, it's going to go into default mode and it's going to turn on those cooling fans. It's a fail-safe, right? Well, we can't have this engine overheating, but I can't talk to the ECM, so I don't know the temperature of the engine. I'm just going to turn on the fans full blast, right? And I learned that the hard way is that the fans kick on when you're trying to program a Nissan because the ECM goes offline. And so it drops the voltage and it messes with the programming, right? That was a mistake that I made at one point or another. And so now I unplug the fans when I program the Nissans. But that was I learned that the hard way because it dropped my system voltage while I was trying to program. So where do I go from here? I'm going to do an all system scan. Now I'm expecting to see either no communication with anything or at least no communication with the engine control module. So I hook up uh, using the top-down scanner. It does a nice system topology. I get all of the modules except for the ECM, TCM, HVAC, and IPDM, again, which is a smart fuse box. So I'm thinking, okay, well, there could be, a, you know, maybe a network break somewhere or maybe a power feed or ground that's shared between these modules. But before I jump in... I want to get a visual of the network, right? And so I pull up a diagram. I see, okay, my network is hardwired into my DLC. And I've learned that lesson the hard way on Chrysler's scoping the network at the DLC when the network at the DLC is a diagnostic can. And it really is, it's not connected to the rest of the vehicle, the actual module network. You'd have to go to another point in the vehicle. Well, this Nissan doesn't do that. You're hardwired in right there at the DLC. But I got my butt kicked on a Chrysler one time, or actually I think a Volkswagen too, multiple times, <laughs> figuring that out that you can't always go with the DLC and you need to know network construction. But I know it in this one and I looked at the diagram. So I use my U-scope, which I love looking at network stuff with the U-scope. It's quick and very effective. And I go across... 6 and 14, which are the CAN bus wires for all OBD2 connectors since 2008. And I look at my signal, and it looks really good, actually. It's a nice, clean square wave that I would equate to a good, functioning CAN network. Now, a couple things here. If you think about a U-scope, you've got a single channel, you've got a colored lead and a ground lead, and I want across. 6 and 14. Why am I going across two different can lines? They're a mirror image of each other. There should be a can high, can low. One's going high, one's going low. Well, I wasted a bunch of time on a Malibu one time chasing what looked to be some sort of abnormality in the can waveform. It's a wavy signal that a lot of people have seen on GMs. Turns out to be completely normal, and I wasted a bunch of time tracking this down. Well, if you put the leads across the can lines, you get rid of any noise. Because if you put the leads across the can lines, you're essentially seeing what the computer sees. In most cases, for the most part, this is not 100% true, but in this case, when I put the 
lines across those two can lines, it looked great. It looked like a perfectly good square wave. But I did one more thing. I took my ground lead from off of, I don't remember if I had it on high or low. I think I had it on can low. So I took the ground lead or the black part of the scope lead and I moved it over to pin four on the DLC, which is ground, vehicle ground, right? So this is how you maybe normally hook up a scope. And then I look at can high and I look at can low individually, right? This is a one channel scope. So I have to do one at a time, but I want to see these lines individually. And can high looks great. It's a two and a half to three and a half square wave, like you'd expect on any can bus waveform, right? Can low, however, with some, I don't know, little blips in voltage, it is a fixed two volts all the time. Okay, this is a problem. This That's not how a CAN bus is supposed to look. A CAN low is supposed to be 2.5 to 1.5 being pulled low, a mirror image of CAN high. It's not. It's a flat line, again, with some like little blips where I think the communication or the data packets would be, but there's not actually any transfer of data here. There's not a square wave. Now, a couple questions here. Why did I decide to check both individually? Well... <laughs> I got my butt kicked on a GMC Acadia that had, I think it was an open can line. And when you went across the lines, it actually looked pretty good. And so I didn't chase a communication issue or, or I should say I didn't chase a network issue. I chased a module issue when in fact it was a network issue. And had I checked each line individually, I would have seen that. Well, I didn't. And so I wasted a bunch of time. I got my butt kicked. So now, whenever I have a network and I'm using my U-scope, which, again, I love to do for these, I check across to eliminate any noise, but I also check each line individually to see what they look like. And in this case, can low is a flat two. So what's happening there? My feeling is this is a module. And why do I feel that? Because I've spent a lot of time researching CAN networks in order to teach network fundamentals at the college, right? I really want to have a good understanding of CAN transceivers. So I did hours and hours of research to understand how they work and to draw out my own circuit to break it down to the most simple level, to explain it to someone at the most simple level on how a CAN network works. And what I know from that is a flat two volts on a network wire is almost 100% going to be caused by a faulty module. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There's always exceptions. There could be something else going on. But a network line, a CAN network line, all the way to DLC, that is just held at a flat 2 volts, and this would be present anywhere in the network, almost has to be a module based on how the network is constructed how the transceivers work, how the modules work. This almost has to be a module. That's my thought process, right? And that didn't come exactly from getting my butt kicked, but from some research, some effort that I took to learn how CAN systems work and how the bias voltage works and how the transceivers work in the modules. So my next decision is to eliminate modules from the network. Who is 
causing this problem to happen. Now, I did say I could talk to some modules, but not others. And when I scanned this vehicle a second time, I ended up getting uh, more modules than I had before. I could talk to the TCM and I could talk to the HVAC. And I tried a couple more times. The two that were consistently unable to reach my scan tool was the ECM and the IPDM, which again is the fuse box under the hood. So I've got two modules to eliminate. And I'm going to start with the ECM. The only reason is because it's easy to get to. It's right by the battery, three connectors. I'm just going to unplug it and I'm going to see what happens to my network, right? I unplug the, the actually I just unplug the top connector, uh, which has powers and grounds to the ECM. And my network immediately comes back. I can talk to everything, including my IPDM. Awesome. Okay. So pretty sure this is a ECM related fault. But before I call an ECM, I want to check my powers and grounds. Why do I want to check my powers and grounds? Well, because I got my butt kicked on a Malibu and I called TCM on a Malibu one time because the ground to the TCM was not sufficient and it was causing a network, uh, an entire network fault. Um, keep this in mind, a power or ground is faulty to a module. And I guess I've seen it more grounds than powers, but powers are a possibility too. A faulty ground or power to a module can cause that module to corrupt the entire data network. So before you replace a module for corrupting a network, always check the powers and grounds, right? Again, got my butt kicked on that one, made the wrong call on that one because I didn't know that could happen. Well, now I do. So I always check powers and grounds. If I find the corrupted module or the module that is corrupting the network, I'm going to check powers and grounds. Okay, so I do this. Pull the connectors off, get my pinouts, start checking powers and grounds. Well, something about Nissans, at least this area of Nissans, if you look at their pinouts, they are a mirror image of the connector. So if you unplug the connector to the ECM, you're looking at the face of it, the female side of the connector, and you're looking at the pinout in service information, the pinout in service information is a mirror image of what you're looking at that correlate to the pin numbers, okay? So you have to imagine it as a mirror and then test it that way. How did I learn that lesson, <laughs> you ask? And I, I know I'm, maybe I'm being repetitive here, but I had a Nissan Rogue with a PCM that was failed. It was actually the PCM that was failed, but I didn't understand that the, uh, the pinouts were mirrored. It was like you were looking into the PCM instead of looking at the connector face. And I didn't know that. And so I thought I was missing powers and grounds for that rogue, which I wasn't. I just didn't understand the pinout. Well, that came to mind when I was testing this connector face. I'm like, okay, mirror image. All right, all right, all right. Powers, grounds, we're good. Let's get an ECM for it. It fixed the car, right? But nothing groundbreaking again. But, and I don't, I don't always think of maybe the exact struggle in the exact car in the moment when I'm going through it. And maybe not all of us do that. But if you really go back and you ask yourself, well, why was that just natural or innate for me to know that or to go that direction or to avoid that pitfall or to check this instead of that? Most of that stuff comes, or a lot of that stuff comes from sometime that we struggled through something that we made the wrong call or we didn't understand something or we just wasted a bunch of time 
and eventually got through it. That's the other part is that we eventually figured it out. We got to the other side and now that's part of us. It's built in. It's baked in. We're going to use that anytime we're in that situation again to avoid that pitfall, to make it more efficient, to get to the answer quicker, to look like some sort of magical wizard (laughs) that figures this thing out in a matter of 10 minutes uh, when they spend hours on it, right? I'm not any smarter than the guy that was working on it. At least I don't, I don't feel that way. I just have spent more time struggling through things and putting effort in to get to the point where I'm at. That's all I have on this other guy that was trying to fix the car. But that's what all of us can have if we're willing to put in the time, if we're willing to dedicate ourselves and not be afraid of taking on things that maybe we otherwise would be. If we can look with a little bit of foresight, an investment mindset, doing these hard things right now are going to pay off in the long run and be effective for us as technicians. Now, one other thing you could say, okay, well, that's great, Sean. I can go out and get my butt kicked all the time, but why not just learn ahead of time? Why not go to classes? Why not watch videos? Why not read? And that is definitely part of it. I mean, trust me, I'm a teacher, educator, right? Like, of course that's part of it. I do a ton of education. I watch a ton of videos. I go to training courses. I listen to people who are smarter than me at this stuff. It's definitely part of it, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. And I think most of us know that just reading, watching, listening to things about this, it's not enough, right? If I want to go play hockey, I could read every single thing about hockey that's out there, you know, understand all of the rules 100%, watch all of the pros and understand the movements that they make, uh, get all the strategy down, the plays down, buy all the best equipment, learn all about, you know, edges and flex in the stick and all that stuff. And if I've never skated before and I try to go out there, I'm going to be completely useless. I'm going to be more more than useless. It's going to be a complete flop. I actually have to get out there and practice if I want to be effective at it. And, and it's the same thing in our field, especially a trade. You have to do it. It's the argument we made during COVID. You have to do it with your hands Yes, education is part of it. It definitely is. You can't you can't just completely avoid that. You need some sort of training so that at least you know the, the challenges that you're going to be up against. It prepares you for it, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. Doing that stuff is where it's really going to lock that in. And especially struggling through something that's going to burn into your memory like nothing else. You'll never forget it. It's always going to be a part of you whenever you approach a situation like that. More so than maybe just reading an article or watching a YouTube video. That that might stick with you, but it's not the same. Like if I watch a video of a guy who breaks a bolt and gets it out with a easy out and puts a Healy coil in, I might not remember that after six months and that this is gone it's a race from my memory but if i break a bolt and i have to drill it out and i have to put a heli coil in 
that's going to stick with me. That's going to be part of me for a long time going forward. Anytime I take that same bolt out, I'm going to stop and think and, okay, well, hang on a second. (laughs) How do we want to approach this? And I mean, if nothing else, maybe if I break it again, I know how to fix it now. Um, I've done it. I physically had those things in my hand, right? So that's, that's, there's two pieces to a puzzle. It's not just all education and it's not just all doing either. You can't just do this stuff. Seeking out training and education, I can't tell you how important that is, but it's only, it's only half. It's, it's only part of being a really effective technician. So if I'm to sum this up, um, one thing that I truly believe, and I could be wrong about this, but I think us as humans, human beings, we're actually, we're, we're literally built for struggle and to overcome challenges, right? What our past as human beings was, there, there always was a major challenge. And that's just baked into our DNA, right? And I actually think if you don't have any challenge or struggle in your life, it presents itself as a problem. It's going to manifest itself in some other way, which is not going to be good. It it is good for us to seek out some challenges, to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone, Life should be difficult in some way, and hopefully we can control that, and it's it's not difficult to the point where it's unbearable, but having something that you've got to push through that is not easy to overcome, it's, I think, part of who we are. So I think we should be doing that on a daily basis, even outside of the automotive trade. I try to a bunch. Um, And that's why I want to talk about this today. So hopefully all that makes sense. Hopefully I'm not sounding crazy, but I want to encourage you to go outside your comfort zone, to take on that challenge maybe you would avoid otherwise. And even if you don't see it in the moment, it's going to benefit you in the long run. So I'm going to leave you uh, with a quote, which is not mine. I'm stealing this from a book. What we fear doing the most is usually what we most need to do. And uh, I, I really enjoy that, and that's uh, helped me out quite a bit uh, through some, <laughs> some life decisions uh, recently. But anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. I love all the feedback that you guys have for me. Um, it's huge. Uh, makes me want to keep doing this and keep growing the podcast. And I do have some big stuff coming up, so keep listening. But... Other than that, let's all get out there and start fixing the world one car at a time.